This is going to be our last message in Acts for this year. Uh, next week, Pastor Billy is going to start us on uh, two weeks looking at Christmas. And then uh, the last Sunday of the year, we're going to have Dr. Sayer speaking to us. Uh, and then next year, we'll get back into the book of Acts. As you're turning to Acts chapter 5, Christmas is a time of traditions, and that you consider and you do things the way that maybe uh, your family did ever since you were little, or maybe it's the things that your uh, spouse brought into the family, but, or maybe there's even traditions that you have established on your own. But this is a time where we start thinking back and we do things the way we used to do them. And as I was thinking about this passage, thinking about traditions, I, I remembered a tradition that we did at my home growing up. It's not a tradition that was unique to Christmas, but it was something that my parents established that we continue to do as each one of their kids got married, they would give them a gift so that that tradition could continue. Some of you have heard my parents talk about that, but it was something that we called a memorial box. And, and what the memorial box was is we had, for my parents, they had an, a spice cabinet with two glass doors. And as different times happened where they saw the hand of God, where they observed God did something incredible, they would find some token that they could put inside to remind them of the truth that God was present God was powerful, God cared, God saw. As we went through the years, we each had our own little stories that went in there, things that as young children we did stupid things and almost died and God kept us from dying. So I have a number of ones in my parents' memorial box. Uh, one of them here is a pair of camo pants when I was walking through the jungle and got bit by a rattlesnake. Another time was when I was walking uh, as a bee and we were walking through very tall grass and I stepped right in the middle of a beehive. And uh, for my, it was myself, my brother, and two cousins. And they counted at least 50 stingers that they pulled out of my face, not including the rest of my body. My brother was over 75. So we have our own little memorials in there. And when we get mar got married... My parents would take the ones that were uniquely from us and put it in here. Now, why would they do that? Because there are certain truths that we need to remember lest we go astray. There are certain foundational truths that there will be times where because of what we are facing, we will be tempted to forget that God is powerful that God is in control, that he has a plan and he has a purpose. And so every once in a while as kids, we would go and pull out one of the memorials and say, can you tell me the story about this one? Tell us the story of how God provided in that circumstance. And not all of the stories are happy endings. Some of them were great tragedies and yet God saw us through those. That's a principle that we see in Scripture. How often in the Old Testament did God go to the Israelites and literally tell them, build up something, 
establish this. Put these rocks on top of each other so that you will remember this. Because if your children forget what happened here, they will go astray. We see the same thing in the Old Testament. On the night that Christ was betrayed, what did he do? He broke the bread. He drank the cup. And then what did he tell them to do? Do this in remembrance. Because this is something that if you forget this, you're going to go astray. But there's another way that the Bible brings these memorials, these ways of revealing a profound truth that we must remember. Do you know what one of the main ways that does that in Scripture? Stories. How much of Scripture is God giving us the stories of his faithfulness? How much of Scripture is God giving us the ways in which he provided? How much of Scripture is revealing his power that is never overcome? The book of Acts is a treasure trove of those stories. Story after story that is revealing nothing overcomes God. His plan will happen. I want us to think through, there's an element where we might think, okay, that's nice. I, I could see the value of that. But, but just join me real quick. Do an intellectual exercise. Imagine what the first readers were going through when they received this book. This is the end of an era. This is a time of tra transition. Why? Because so much of the book of Acts happens through the hands of the apostles. But when you reach the end of the book of Acts, some of those apostles have died. Some of those apostles are dispersed through the land. Some of those apostles are imprisoned. And yet, what we saw at the beginning of the book of Acts, do we have a mission as the church? What's our mission? You will be my witnesses. Now, just witnesses sometimes and just witnesses in a small location, right? No, what, what does it say? You will be, not you will sometimes be, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is a mission that is astronomical. It's huge. And they could, the early church might be thinking, well, wait a second, how are we going to do this? Because the people who have always done this, they're dying. They're imprisoned. They might be looking at this task that's before them and they say, this task is too big. This mission is too hard. The price is too high. The problems are too many. The persecution's too painful. The opposition too terrifying. They know what it costs to follow Jesus. And yet, what does Luke give them when they're looking and saying, I, I don't think we can do this. Luke gives them stories. Stories, memorials that say, hey, wait a second. Look back. Remember. See what God has done. These truths are truths that the church needs lest we go astray. These truths are truths that we need if we are going to accomplish our mission. In our story this morning, we're going to focus on two of those truths. The one is God's incredible power. 
power that cannot be overcome. The second is the obedience we see of his followers. And that fits pretty well with what we've been talking about in Acts. Take heart, take action. Take heart, God is powerful. Nothing overcomes. Take action, he has given you a mission that we must obey. Here's our big idea. Obediently proclaim Christ, knowing no obstacle overthrows God's plan. Obediently proclaim Christ, knowing, seeing the memorial, knowing no obstacle overthrows God's plan. Let's jump in now and look at chapter 5, starting with verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. What are we seeing as we start the passage right here? What, think back, has there been a time where the apostles have done a sign or wonder in a public place in the temple, and that something happened as a result of that? Yeah. Back in chapters 3 and chapters 4, we saw Peter and John do a sign and wonder, and they were imprisoned for it. After that happened, after they were bold before the Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests, the scribes, all of those people, they leave when they're set free. And what do they go do? They go with the other believers and they pray. They pray for courage. They pray that this would continue. This is what it says in Acts 4, 29 through 30. This is their prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What are we seeing as we begin this next chapter in chapter 5? What are we seeing in this first verse? God answered their prayers in a powerful way. They're back in the temple. They're back proclaiming Christ. Through their hands, God is doing incredible signs and wonders. We're seeing here Divine power and bold obedience. They prayed for divine power and, and bold obedience, and that is what's happening. But we jump down to then verse 13, and we have a confusing verse where it says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Earlier I was going through this passage with some people on Tuesday, and we had different opinions in the room of what the rest meant. And so I, was, I had an opinion, and I went to commentaries, and when I get to the commentaries, they are also divided on what the rest means. But as I've gone through this, I've actually changed where I was on Tuesday. I think what's being described here is that the rest is other believers. Now, it's possible that this is talking about the rest of other people who are unwilling to associate with the apostles. They're unwilling to put their name together with Christ. That is a view, and, and, it, and it's valid. But I think what Luke is demonstrating here is that there are still those who are in a process of development. The apostles prayed for boldness. They're doing it, but, but the rest are still unsure. 
The rest are uncertain of what's going to happen because the last time this happened, Peter and John got thrown in jail. They got out, but that wasn't guaranteed. It's not a guarantee of what's going to happen to them if they go into the place of power of where the Sanhedrin is, where the chief priests, who they know are against this, they know what they want. The rest don't dare not join them, but the people held them in high esteem. The people at large are seeing the power that God is doing through signs, and they're hearing the public proclamation of the name of Jesus. And see how God powerfully uses the apostles' bold obedience. Look at, continue in verses 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, as we've gone through the first chapters of Acts, we've already come across a few numbers. What was one of the big numbers that we got to early in the book? And how many? 3,000 were added to their number. Later, we see them after they do the sign with the the, the cripple, and it says, and there were now 5,000, just the men. But now we come to this statement, and we see more than ever. What is God doing? God is powerfully at work through the obedience of the disciples. More than ever, believers are being added to the number, multitudes of both men and women. I want you to just picture the setting here. Look at how Luke describes what's happening. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. Then as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Something incredible is happening in their midst. God is powerfully at work, and this is starting a movement. I I think we can't even, we'll have a hard time comprehending the buzz that's happening in Jerusalem. Some of you are, are Philadelphia people and wearing Philadelphia Eagles paraphernalia. You remember a few years back, what was the big event that happened in Philadelphia? The The Eagles finally won their First Super Bowl. Their second one's following later this year. It's not prophetic. Don't, not, not a prophecy. They finally win. They've never won before. What happened in that city? Chaos. Joyful, but chaos. On the day that you have the parade, they are lining the streets to be able to see Jason Kelsey to see him do his speech. They're all there. They're so excited. Look at what's being described here from other towns. And not, there's no social media. It's not like everyone's observing of like, oh, this is happening now. No, people are traveling into the city because it started, the rumor has started to spread. God is doing something we want to see. We want to be part of. We want to line the streets so just their shadow might be on us. How does God use the bold obedience of his people? 
God uses it in powerful ways. Is this a truth we need to remember? Is this a truth that God powerfully uses the obedience of his people? Is that a truth that if we forget that, we might be led astray? That we might abandon the mission? That we might no longer pursue our purpose? It is. So Luke says, hey, see what God was doing. You know, it's interesting. We've, we've thought a little bit about the perspective of the early church thinking about this transition of what's going to happen to us. I mean, the apostles have kind of always been the guys to do this. And now you're expecting us to continue that? Do you know who felt that before the early church felt that? The disciples. Jesus telling them, I'm going to leave. You can't. What are we going to do? We can't do this. We don't have this kind of power. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm going to give you everything you need. It's for your benefit that I'm leaving. Peace I give to you. My peace. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that through his power you may be witnesses. The early church is feeling what the apostles had already felt. But what are we seeing in the story of the apostles? God powerfully uses their obedience. But there's a cost to obeying Christ. He does powerfully use them, but there is still going to be persecution for those who follow Christ. Jesus told them, if they hated me, they will hate you. The servant is not greater than the master. Look at the next section where we go and see this, what happens next in our story. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Feel some of the tension that Luke's describing. This incredible moment, this incredible display of power, but the high priest rose up. One of the patterns we're going to see throughout the whole book of Acts is that as God's word increases and spreads, we will continue to see greater and greater opposition against it. It will end before Caesar, the greatest power that is known on the, in, the, in the world. And it is continually going to grow and grow. Sometimes internal opposition, sometimes external opposition. Here we have this great power. This is the Jewish leader. This is their highest authority. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, they are filled with jealousy and they arrest the apostles and put them in pr prison. These are people of great earthly power and they are jealous. Why are they jealous? Because the people are holding them in high esteem. Because the people are lining the streets to hear their words. Because the people want to hear the name that is being proclaimed that is above every name. And what do they do? They throw them in prison. It's already happened to Peter and John, but now it's the rest of the 12. All of them are now in public prison. 
Here is a display not of God's power, at least on face value. Here is a display of man's power. And this is a great power. This is a power that causes us to stay awake at night. If I follow Jesus and that's the cost, I'm not sure I want to. But what happens? But during the night. Yeah, that first but was big. But the high priest, nothing compared to this one. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. An angel sets them free. An angel opens the door. Uh, There's a little part of me that's Luke, with all of your ability to write, you couldn't have made this a little more climactic, but an angel opened the door for them. Okay. It's just almost, he just slips us in as if like, yeah, but why is he doing that? Because for God, this is nothing. This isn't a climactic moment for God where he's like, man, and, and I, they put them in prison and I didn't know what to do, but I, I mustered the forces. I got the, the strength from heaven and I set them free and I did it. No, for God, this is like, done. Do you want to put them in jail? No, that's not my purpose for them. My purpose for them is to be preaching in the temple. Get them out of there right now. Who's the higher authority? Who's the greater power? See, what we're seeing here is God's power that is far greater than any earthly power. You think you can stop my plan? You think you can stop what I have told them to do? You have no power in this. Get them out of there. Why? Why does he get them out? Because he wants them to go and preach. Go and stand in the temple. That is what he is telling them to do. It's what he has been telling them since the beginning. Go and make disciples of every nation. You will be my witnesses. Proclaim the name that is above every name. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. How would this be an encouragement to the early church? Think of of the difference this made in the apostles' life. Do you think it makes a difference the next time they're going to preach when they think, yeah, we might go to prison, but this is what our God has done? Thinking of a different story, do you think Lazarus was still scared of death after he was brought back to life? Now, make no mistake, I'm not saying that Lazarus didn't still die. He did. And I'm not saying the apostles didn't still go to prison. They did. But does it make a difference to know the one you serve has power over those things? Now, the cynics in us, we're going to say, that's great for them. That's great that they got out of jail. But how is it a comfort to me when there's no guarantee that I'll be pulled out of prison? What comfort and courage is given to me when there's no guarantee that he's going to do the same for me? This is where we need to borrow from all of the other theological truths that we know. The fact is, does God love us? Is God in control? Does God have a plan and purpose. Does God have the power to set us free? Yes. 
So if he doesn't set us free, what does that mean? That's where he wants us. It's one thing if every story, he leaves them in prison and it's like, I don't know if God could do anything about that. It's completely different when it's like, wait a second, God could pull me out, but he chose not to. Jump with me to Acts 28. Jump to the end of this book. Let's see where this book ends. Right now, the apostles are being set free. They're preaching in the temple. But where does the book end? It ends with Paul in prison. Looking at verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Where is Paul while he's doing that? He's in prison. Jump down to verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense in prison and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now we could say, wait, Paul might be thinking, God, why, why won't you set me free? You set Peter and John free. You set the other apostles free. Why don't you set me free? Because that's where God wanted him. See, our comfort in this is seeing God's power that God places us where he wants to be so that we can obey him and fulfill our purpose. That's the comfort that we have in this passage. Yes, God pulled them out because he's like, I want you to preach somewhere else. But there's other stories, there's other times where that's not going to be the result. Stephen's going to stand in the midst of the people. He's going to proclaim Christ and God's not going to remove death from him. It's going to happen that he will be stoned and die and yet that's for a purpose because God's going to use it to accomplish his plan. See, we are comforted in knowing he can set us free for the sake of his plan and we are comforted that if he does not set us free, it is also for the sake of of his plan. These are truths we must remember and hold on to lest we go astray. Lest we say that price is too high for me to follow this mission. But look now and see what happens and there's a hu some humor in the passage. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Here are these people. They had a good night of sleep. They know, they feel secure in their power. They put on their priestly robes, their robes of excellence. They go into their spot, their seats of authority, and they say, bring those people here. Have them come and stand before our authority. Let them sit and bask in our power. Surprise. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. They think they have all this power, but it's nothing compared to God's power. They can't even understand God's power. When the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. 
They were perplexed about them, wondering what this could come to. In all their power, with all of their authority, they can't even understand what God is doing because their power is nothing compared to God. They cannot comprehend it. This is what it says at the beginning of John 1. The light has come into the world and the darkness cannot, and it's a a, a play on words that, that John uses, cannot comprehend it and cannot conquer it. It's the same word, but it has both meanings. The darkness cannot comprehend the light. The darkness cannot conquer the light. That's what we see here. They're perplexed. They don't understand. They're wondering, wondering what this would come to, and they have no idea what this is going to come to. See, this isn't the first time that this specific group has sought to place their adversary in a sealed compartment with a guard at the door. How did it work the first time for them? Hey, we know what to do. We'll kill him, we'll put him in, we'll put a big stone in front, and we'll put Roman guards at the door. How'd that work for them? This time, door's locked, guards are still there, but they're gone. They have no idea. And now here's the slap in the face. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. The audacity of these apostles. We told you not to preach. We put you in prison and you had the audacity to not stay there and instead to go back. You didn't even have the sense to run away. You were so unconcerned about our power, you didn't even run away when Christ set you free. You went right back to where we, had, we found you the first time. The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. These men are obeying. See, irony in this passage is, who are the people of power in this passage? It's the priests. It's the leaders of the Jews. And yet, how, what emotion words are given to us in this passage? They're jealous. They're perplexed. They're wondering what this is going to lead to. They're unsure. And they're afraid. What kind of power is this? It's a power that's being mocked by the power of God. You have no power. You're jealous of these apostles. You're perplexed at what God's doing. You're unsure where this is going to lead to. And you're afraid of these people that you're supposed to be leading. See, God is greater. The schemes of man are nothing to God. These are truths worth remembering lest we are led astray. And we come to the showdown. Because now the apostles, these 12 men, are standing before the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men, probably then also soldiers there. You have this great showdown, a theme that we've seen throughout the book, this continual showdown between light and darkness. The showdown that Stephen, preaching last week, showed us between Satan and the Holy Spirit. But here we come to the showdown again. And who is going to win? priests take the first shot and when they had brought them they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying we strictly charge you not to teach in this name yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us how dare you 
Who do you think you are? How dare you go against our authority? We told you to stop. We let you free. How dare you go against us? Don't you know who we are? You continue teaching. It's spreading like fire throughout all of Jerusalem. And on top of that, what you're spreading out there is that this man's blood is on our heads. Notice what they're saying. This man. They won't even say his name. They won't identify his position that he is the Christ. This man. You intend to bring his blood upon us. You intend to make us guilty. What's the irony? It's a passage we've done before on Easter. What did these men say when Pilate tried to wash his hands of the blood of Christ's death and saying, I want no part of this. Matthew 27, 24 through 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather than a riot, rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, Pilate's wrong. He's not innocent of this man's blood. He was part of this. You can't just say, no, I'm, I'm not guilty for Jesus' death. If you have sin, you're guilty for Christ's death. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And now the apostles are going around saying, yeah, you killed him. Whoa, don't put his blood on us. You said it. His blood be on us. This is the irony. His blood is on them. But it's also the tragedy. Because yes, the apostles desire that his blood would be on them. What the apostles are going to say next is that he came for the, repent, for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, I am trying to see the blood of Christ on you, those who killed him. The question is, are these men who are going to have the blood of condemnation or the blood of salvation? Both are the blood of Christ. But God's blood, Christ's blood that was spilled out either is on you in a way that condemns you because you have not repented before him and sought salvation or his blood is on you in a way that saves you. The irony is that they don't want the blood that condemns them nor do they want the blood that will save them. But you don't get a choice. The blood is on you in one or the other. Even though they try to reject it, it is on them. But look at how they respond. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. See, all of this is about, this isn't about them doing signs and wonders. This isn't even about them being present in the temple. They haven't been banished from any of those. What this is about is what they said the last time. This is about the proclamation of Jesus' name. And what has God told these disciples, these apostles, these Christians, including here, what has he told them to do? Proclaim the name above every name, for there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. And so the apostles understand, we understand what you're trying to do. See, what they're trying to say is, the, the, the priests are saying, submit to us. And the apostles say, Submit to God. We must obey God rather than men. 
I, I really want us to understand the word that Peter uses. Does Peter say, we choose to obey? We will obey? We want to obey? What does he say? We must obey. This is first priority. This is everything. This is not a choice. This is a command. We must obey. And who are they obeying? The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is the God we are obeying. The God who died for us. The God who, according to the Father's plan, was raised again, who even now is at the right hand of the Father. He is the leader. He is the savior. It is through him that repentance is given. It is through him that we are forgiven. Yes, his blood is on you, but we want his blood on you so that you can repent and be forgiven. See, what they're revealing here is this is God's power. This was part of the plan. Yes, you killed him. Yes, you hung him in the place of shame on the tree, but this was part of God's plan. What you intended for evil, God used for good. And so then they come back in verse 32 with a return to what they must do. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What's the implication here? Do these priests have the Holy Spirit? And who receives the Holy Spirit? Those who obey. Notice the boldness of these apostles. They say, okay, where is the point that is going to reveal the schism, reveal the, the break between what we are saying and what you are saying. That's where we're going to lean into because that's a matter of life and death. What Stephen said last week, how you come to Christ is a matter of life and death. Why are the disciples this bold? Because they have not forgotten the greater truths. God is more powerful and God has told us what to do. He's the greatest power. He's the greatest authority. He is the leader and he has told us. So we must obey. We come down then to this profound statement from one in their midst who likely did not recognize how profound his statement really was. Notice first the, the response of these leaders. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, leaders, listen to me. Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. Hey, guys, listen. If, if this is just some guys who have this idea and do this, they're going to die and this is going to go away. Don't be so worried about this. In some ways, what, God, uh, what, what Gamaliel is revealing is God's more powerful than this. So 
So in the present case, I will tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing them. See, it's a profound statement. The truth of the statement, we can see it even in the historical consideration. If this is of God, you will not overthrow it. Years later is when this book comes out. The early church is reading this 30 years later. What do they know? It was not overthrown. Gamaliel was right. You will not be able to overthrow it. We see it in the historical sense. But we also, even within the passage, we can see the futility of the power of men. You remember how we see all these emotion words in this passage? If you were to think of a passage, if you were to think of someone like these people have authority, they're in control, they are powerful, they're not going to be volatile, you would think it's the leaders of this nation. But where is the leader's power? The leaders were jealous of the attention the apostles received from the people. But the apostles humbly pointed and publicly professed that God is the source of all power. The leaders were perplexed at what was happening and unsure of where this would lead. The apostles were confident in the word of word God had already accomplished and the task he had called them to do. The leaders were afraid of what the people might do. The apostles boldly and publicly proclaimed the name of Jesus and the people's guilt regardless of what the people might do. The leaders were enraged because their authority had been challenged and their sin revealed the apostles were full of joy because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's name. The leaders perished and their followers were scattered. Their work coming to nothing. The apostles lived for Christ and their work was never overthrown for it was of God and it continues bearing fruit to this day. In the passage we see their power is nothing. Yeah, from our earthly perspective, it seems like they have great power, but the reality is they have no power. But there is a greater way that we can see truth here. Gamaliel gets it mostly right. But what he says, while that is the normal pattern, it is not the eternal pattern. What does he say when people die, what will happen? They will scatter, and that will be the end of it. The reality is when it came to Christ, it was the opposite. Before Christ's death, where did his followers go? They scattered. What was it that brought them back? His death. See, the death of Christ reveals to us the greatest power because the death of Christ takes the problem that no man could ever solve and Christ resolves it. We have assurance of that because Christ is risen. He's alive. And now, the irony is, will the disciples, will the followers be scattered? Yes, but according to the plan. We're going to reach chapter 8, and the people are going to be scattered around the world because that's what was meant to happen. We come then to the end, and we see this mysterious joy. We've seen the power of God that is far greater than any power. But we come to verse 41 and it says, so they took his advice. Now I always find that this next phrase is funny because he says, leave these men alone. Do nothing. 
And then it says, so they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. I'm like, I I don't know if you guys really heard what he said. (laughs) And once again, they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. But the apostles have already proven that they will not follow men. They will not submit to man. They will obey God. Then they left the presence of the council. And here's the emotion. All of the emotions in this passage don't make sense to us. The people in charge are jealous. They're perplexed. They're unsure. They're angry. They're afraid. And then those who are weak in the world standards, those who have just gone through prison, those who have just been beaten, those who have just had the leaders of that day tell them to shut up, they're rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then where do they go from there? And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This story here is a memorial of God's power through his people's obedience. We need to remember that lest we go astray. The reality is probably most of us have already gone a little astray. Where are we publicly proclaiming the name of Jesus? Where is your Solomon's portico that you know if I go there, it is likely I will suffer to proclaim Christ? Where is the place where the authorities of this world are saying, you must not speak? And so you're moving away from it. No one has the authority to contradict what God has said. Now, I, I, I want to understand and, and, and say, yes, there, there is wisdom. There is a time and a place. There are times in which it, 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 it does, depending on your job. But I think we probably too often go to the, oh, no, no, but that's not. Christ would never ask me to go against that in that situation. And I would just say, look at what the apostles do. We must obey God rather than men. And no man has the authority to tell you not to proclaim the name of Jesus. Do they have authority? Sure. Are we supposed to submit to your earthly leaders and rulers? We are. But they do not have the authority to say, you must not proclaim the name of Jesus. And if you choose to obey, expect God to powerfully work. It might not work in the way that he gets you out of prison, but it will work to accomplish his plan and purpose. And notice the result for the disciples. Think again, the early church, if you're thinking about what the cost is going to be to follow Christ, what are you feeling? Fear. Inadequacy. I can't do this. What are the apostles feeling after they go through this? Joy. I was listening to one message, and the pastor asked a very, made an interesting statement on this. Do you think we lack joy because we lack the action of proclaiming? Is maybe the reason that there is not more joy in our life because there's a lack of proclamation of Christ. See, where they have joy, 
but it's joy after they proclaimed Christ, after they said, God, you're my priority. You're everything to me. And God, if I get to suffer because I'm choosing to follow you, thank you. This is a joy that does not make sense to the world, but they are overwhelmed with joy because they're suffering. Power plus obedience equals joy when we're actually obeying. But if we lack joy, is it because we are not proclaiming? Is it because we are not obeying? Is it because we have forgot the power that is on our side? See, we have a mission. We have a divine purpose. So the question is, how are we doing? How are we doing on this mission? Because that baton that Christ passed to the first apostles and said, you need to keep doing this. As the Father sent me, so I send you into the world. Go and proclaim me. And those apostles went to the early church and they said, as we received from Christ, we pass on to you, go and proclaim Christ. And those, that church went on and followed and passed that on to other people. And there is, what we've said before, an unbroken line from Christ to the apostles to the church to you where you are sitting right now. Someone took that and said, that is a mission that must be done and I will pass it on. And it continues unbroken to where you are. Don't drop the baton. You'll be tempted to. But look at the memorial. Look at what God has done. See his power displayed. It'll be hard. It'll feel, the task will feel too big. The mission will feel too hard. The price will often seem too high. The problems too many. The persecution too painful. And the opposition too terrifying. Look back. Remember. See the truth that has already been revealed. We can't do this. This is beyond us, but Christ can. What's interesting in our story is there's only one apostle named. Which apostle's named? Peter. What's Peter's story? Did Peter always boldly proclaim Christ? No. What is Peter known for? Three denials. Three times when he's in the court and they say, Aren't you with Jesus? No, I'm not with Jesus. That's Peter's story. But look at Peter's story now. If you're sitting here thinking, I can't do that. I'm no Peter. Actually, you might be more like Peter than you think. And let's hope you are a Peter. Let's hope you are a Peter that previously denied, but now through the power of the Spirit is boldly proclaiming. This is beyond us. Make no mistake. That's why the memorial is not the power of the apostles. The memorial is the power of God. Take heart. Take heart in the divine power. Take action. Obediently proclaim Christ. Our big idea, obediently proclaim Christ, knowing no obstacle overthrows God's plan.